Welcome to Peak True Crime, a podcast telling of dark tales and dastardly deeds in Derbyshire and the Peak District. The Boy from Repton School Nestled in the picturesque Derbyshire countryside, close to the border with Staffordshire, Repton School has a reputation as a bastion of the English public school system. Founded in 1557 by Sir John Port, it has a history spanning over centuries. Its sprawling campus, adorned with historic buildings and boasting modern sports facilities, including floodlit astroturf hockey pitches, a full-size indoor hockey facility, an indoor swimming pool with spectators area, tennis courts, netball and squash courts, as well as a 400-seat theatre modelled on the main performance space at RADA, with an array of support staff, including an actor-in-residence, performance directors for tennis, cricket, hockey, football, rugby, as well as a director of music. Parents pay just under £45,000 a year to give their precious offspring the best start in life an opportunity to follow their dreams and to achieve success in whatever field they choose, be it academic, professional, political or sporting. One such pupil was Jonathan Arnold. Though not the most academic of students, he was a proficient sportsman, representing his county at cricket, as well as having trials for professional football side Aston Villa. He came from a respectable family. His father, John, founded a successful property advertising business. Jonathan joined the family firm once it was decided that he wouldn't be going to university. And as business manager, the self-professed next generation of the business was penciled in to build on the reputation and success his dad had built. The family's fortune, however, came from Jonathan's mother, Sue. In the early 2000s, the media and publishing company she founded sold out for over £20 million. She went on to further success, consulting in the space, as well as operating as a professional mentor. Outside of work, Sue unsuccessfully stood as a Conservative parliamentary candidate for her hometown constituency of Walsall West. Her failed tilt at high public office wasn't a setback, however, with her expertise in communication utilised when she was appointed Deputy Police and Crime Commissioner for Staffordshire. In her role, she visited youth justice centres, courts, police custody suites, photographed beside uniformed officers, juvenile offenders and steel-barred jail cell doors. Pictures that had come back to haunt her when, in 2022, along with sniffer dogs and specialist search officers, the police, working under the direction of the National Crime Agency, executed a search warrant. The reason? Her son, Jonathan, had been arrested for conspiracy to smuggle 1.4 tonnes of cocaine into the country.
Maritime transport is the backbone of international trade and the global economy. Over 80% of the volume of all goods traded internationally are carried by sea. And in this world where cargo ships, and they can sometimes be enormous cargo ships, rule the waves, three letters are critical in ensuring the interoperability of the entire network. Those three letters are T-E-U. A TEU, or 20-foot equivalent unit, is the standard size by which cargo is measured. If you're in the UK and you do your shopping online, it's the size of the chilled box compartment on the delivery vans from Tesco's or Waitrose or wherever. Two TEUs is the equivalent of one of those shipping containers that you'll often see selling vegan burritos in outdoor venues or greasy bacon butties at the side of the road. From Vladivostok to Venezuela, be it Marmite, Melons or replica Manchester United shirts, each cargo is measured and packed in containers of a known TEU. This makes the loading and offloading, the stacking on board and at portside, straightforward and therefore quicker and more efficient. It also makes each cargo relatively anonymous, with one hulking steel container virtually identical to the other thousand or so on board. Paperwork might say one thing, but when even a few minutes delay, loading can cost thousands of pounds, nobody's going to be too concerned if a few TEUs aren't put in exactly the correct spot. Now, when it comes to importing goods into Europe, the Dutch port of Rotterdam is the largest entry point. Handling almost 16 million TEUs a year, over half a billion tonnes of goods move in and out on nearly 13,000 container vessels annually. The operation is huge, and therefore, if legitimate business see it the most efficient route into Europe, it comes as no surprise that the less legitimate businesses do too. The nearby Belgian port of Antwerp, though smaller than Rotterdam, sees a huge throughput of shipping and is similarly seen as a major route for cocaine and synthetic drugs into Europe from South and Central America. In the last few years, a greater amount of Colombia's national export is being shifted through Antwerp, leading to violent battles between the established smuggling gangs of Belgium and the Netherlands and the brigades sponsored by the Colombian cartels, who strive to control not only production and wholesale transportation, but also distribution direct-to-market. The authorities know all this, but in the face of an increasingly global network of players, they also know that while intelligence-led and opportunistic seizures take place, significant quantities slip through, finding their way to cities, towns and villages across the continent. As such, in these larger ports, Huge resources are committed to the disruption of drug importation. Greater overt and covert surveillance on port employees is in place to assess who might be vulnerable to exploitation by traffickers. AI is used to monitor for unusual patterns of loading and unloading. Enhanced cross-border cooperation is utilised, a clearer intelligence picture of those operators who are suspected of facilitating smugglers. But the smugglers know all this too. But for them, it's a numbers game. 
given that the cost of cocaine by the kilo in Colombia is only just a little bit more than 600 US dollars. And wholesale, delivered to the EU, the figure is well over 35,000 US dollars, even if 50% is incepted by authorities, and the real figure is thought to be well below that, the margins are still phenomenal. So there we have it. Tons and tons flow undetected through Rotterdam, even with all the counter-trafficking measures. Still though, smugglers want to supply as much of their product into the lucrative EU market, so start using a port in Antwerp. Critically, Seizure numbers don't drop in Rotterdam as they rise in Antwerp. Supply just expands, with more and more cocaine and amphetamines arriving in Europe each day. The expansion then continues, and that is how, at the small regional port of Lissingen, 80 kilometres west of Antwerp, the authorities discovered 1,477 kilograms, one and a half tonnes of cocaine, with a street value of approximately 118 million Great British Pounds, hidden among a shipment of bananas from Colombia. A discovery which would lead to a knock on the front door in March 2022 of the parent of Repton Old Boy, Jonathan Arnold. There are certain stock images that the media use to illustrate certain types of news reports. Stories about healthcare are often accompanied by generic doctors in white coats. He, and it's more often than not a he, is stood beside the bed of a patient, stethoscope around his neck, medical chart in hand. Reports on education matters are paired with a tableau depicting a row of eager-faced pupils Hands raised enthusiastically but politely in the air while a teacher is selecting one to answer a question. When it comes to the British obsession with the housing market, one, one shot reigns supreme. One composition has moved far, far beyond the realm of cliché and is so entrenched in the news lexicon as to be near sacrosanct. That is the for sale sign. That is the for sale sign. In the US, I think they're called yard signs, but regardless of which side of the Atlantic you're on, but regardless of which side of the Atlantic you're on, you're well aware of what I'm talking about. Those ubiquitous pole and plastic bits of signage that let your neighbours know that they're free to nosy around your home from the comfort of their sofa by visiting www.imsellingmyhouseorwhatever.com. It's these very signs that were the foundation for which Jonathan Arlen's father, John, built his business. Whereas estate agents in the past had commissioned a manufacturer to make the signs and then employed a different person to put them up, the revolutionary trick John Sr. pulled in the late 1990s was to deliver both services. He not only made and stored the signs, but he also took over the insulation too and he didn't limit himself to just one estate agent. He offered the same service to multiple agencies, another innovation in the way he worked, 
scaling the operation whereby in some towns across the Midlands, every house sale was promoted by one of his signs. And with the sign business sewn up, John Senior leveraged his existing business to supply all sorts of marketing materials to the trade, from banners and stands for trade fairs, to brochures and stationery printing, even liveries for vehicles. On leaving school in 2011, Jonathan joined the family firm, and for the following decade all seemed, from the outside at least, to be going well. Business was booming, with Jonathan taking sole responsibility for some of the fastest growing areas of work. He enjoyed holidays in the US and Mexico, flying to Vegas to enjoy VIP hospitality packages for MMA fights. What prompted his decision isn't known, but in early 2020, Jonathan decided to leave the family firm and set up on his own. Not leaving the industry altogether, he moved into the removals game. His route to market was obvious. Using the relationships he developed through the family business, he had a network of contacts with direct access to people moving home. With a loan to cover capital investment and operational expenditure, Jonathan was ready to hit the ground running. The sole director and owner of the business, he was for the first time exerting his independence and the future looked positive. A global pandemic, however, had other ideas. UK-wide lockdowns left thousands of home movers across the country with no choice but to put the plans on hold. This had a huge impact on the launch of the business and the first year of operations. With the government keen to keep what remained of the functioning economy active, it may not have been long before house moves restarted, but at a much lower rate than Jonathan could have forecast. As a result, real estate removals, the name of his company, was hemorrhaging money. By early 2021, however, with the fears of Covid retreating month by month, Jonathan's father came on board as a director. He not only brought with him a wealth of experience, but in taking a percentage share in the business, he presumably brought with him further investment. Whether it was during the darkest days of Covid, or in an attempt to raise funds to buy his dad out of the business, or simply the desire to make his fortune fast, at some stage in 2011, Jonathan moved into the business of drug smuggling. From the outside, the business was thriving. A fleet of fully branded lorries and trucks were travelling not only around the country, but also internationally, and they were expanding into commercial relocations too. The company's social media pages boast of local boxes they're sponsoring, as well as carrying inspirational posts, extolling the virtues of perseverance and self-belief. This carefully curated picture was to be slightly undermined when a fully branded real estate removal truck was stopped and searched by two French customer officials in Cannes in January 2022. Hidden behind a consignment of furniture they discovered in a handful of nondescript cardboard boxes, drugs with a relatively modest UK wholesale value of as little as £2.5 million. Post-Brexit, border controls between Britain and Europe have undergone something of a change. Where previously both immigration and customs inspections 
were largely light touch, with checks made on one side effectively being accepted by both. Now, although now fully implemented in the UK, each country undertakes its own checks on who and what is crossing its borders. He was during a cursory customs check on the French side of the channel that sniffer dogs alerted to the white box van with the words real estate removaled emblazoned on the side. Behind a collection of wooden dining chairs, a dining table, an assortment of other items of furniture, the boxes were found, containing 63 blocks of cocaine, weighing 71 kilograms, as well as 99 bags of ketamine, weighing 101 kilograms. With the driver unable to move them from the van until he'd made the near six-hour journey across the channel, it was decided to let the UK authorities know and allow them to make the call as to what action to take. The choice was to intercept the haul as it rolled off the ferry or monitor it as it went on with its journey, hopefully letting it lead them to the next stage of the distribution process. Maybe utilising the idiom of a bird in the hand being worth two in the bush, as the vehicle drove through the green nothing to declare lane at Portsmouth, it was signalled to pull over, its illicit cargo identified and the driver arrested. It's believed that this was the first time the company name Real Estate Removals had come to the attention of the authorities. It would, though, definitely not be the last. What happened immediately after the arrest at Portsmouth isn't known. Little was revealed at court, and additional reporting around the case doesn't provide very much more information beyond what was disclosed during legal proceedings. What it's fair to assume, though, is that the loss of £2.5 million worth of drugs wouldn't have gone unnoticed. It's true, that level of seizures has to be expected by criminals, but the need for it to be an outlier, as opposed to a regular occurrence, would have been a priority. In the year between this and his arrest in March 2022, Jonathan Arland and his associates were clearly enjoying a lavish lifestyle. Media reports post-conviction talk of trips to Dubai, fast cars and expensive watches. Much is made of the expensive dental work Jonathan had done, so clearly money, and lots of it, was flowing in his direction. Maybe more drugs were being brought into the UK from abroad. Maybe he was utilising his now fleet of innocuous-looking removal vans that legitimately travelled up and down the country to courier drugs between cities. What is known for sure, though, is while a sizeable and profitable operation, Jonathan Arnold was simply providing logistical services. There's nothing to suggest he or any of his close associates dealt drugs, just that they'd provided an efficient, a relatively risk-free means of transportation. One of the trappings of the drugs trade is its proximity to sport, particularly boxing. Irish drugs kingpin Daniel Kinahan, through his sports management group MTK Global, long boasted of associations with some of the biggest names in sports, right up to including the heavyweight champion of the world Tyson Fury. 
It was at the weigh-in of a European lightweight title fight in Ireland in February 2016 that an audacious assassination attempt was made on Kinahan's life, with armed men, disguised as guard officers, shooting their way in and out of the Regency Hotel in Dublin, leaving his cousin dead and sparking a war of tit-for-tat violent retaliation that would see possibly as many as 18 killed on the streets of Dublin and beyond. If you've seen the recent Netflix documentary on Fury, he's often working out at his private gymnasium, which is based in Morgan Football Ground. Exterior shots of giant black banners proclaiming that the gym is the training base for the self-proclaimed Gypsy King Fury. If you look closely there, on each of the banners in the bottom left-hand corner, the logo of the Kinahan-founded boxing business, MTK Global, can be seen, somewhat undermining the protestations of Fury that he never had any business dealings with Kinahan. Boxing and organised crime have a long and storied association, and Jonathan Arnold clearly wanted to be seen continuing that tradition. He dabbled in the fight game, therefore, sponsoring two local boxers, one of whom was a British and Commonwealth champion, and attended fights in the UK and abroad. Brought up in privilege, it seemed he sought to live a life with a little more edge than his education at Repton was meant to have prepared him for. Company's House is the official UK government agency responsible for regulating and overseeing the registration and administration of companies. His main role is to maintain an accurate and up-to-date record of companies and ensure transparency and accountability across the entire corporate sector. All British businesses on the foundation must provide certain information on who owns the company, who runs the company and what it does. Then, on an annual basis, were made or were made, or when major changes occur, they must update the register. In early 2022, a new business, based at the offices of Real Estate Removals, <coughs> in early 2022, a new business, based out of the offices of Real Estate Removals, and with a director named Jonathan Arnold was incorporated and registered at Company's House. Called Modification and Performance Limited, its main business was the repair, restoration and modification of motor vehicles. Alongside Jonathan, as a director, was a friend of his and one of his first employees at Real Estate Removals, James Jenkins. With an ever-expanding fleet of vehicles which require maintenance it makes sense, instead of farming out what would surely have been a constant programme of maintenance to a third party, to set up an in-house repair shop that could, when time allowed, take in outside work. The more suspicious among you might also think that, if on a previous attempt to smuggle drugs into the UK, your nod towards concealment was a pile of old furniture, a slightly more sophisticated approach might be better suited to the task. Maybe some kind of structural modification to a lorry, perhaps? It's impossible to say whether one or both 
or neither of these were motivation for his new enterprise. But when both directors of the new business were arrested for their part in a plot to smuggle one and a half tonnes of cocaine into the UK, well, it does make me think. But we get ahead of ourselves. Concealed in a two TU-sized steel container of bananas, the drugs were loaded onto the Atlantic Kipper, a 165-metre refrigerated cargo ship, in early 2022 at the small Colombian port of Turbo, which handily is located just six hours' drive north of Medellin. From here, it would make the 6,123 nautical mile journey across the North Atlantic to the port of Vissingham in the Netherlands and arrive in April the same year, before a short hop across the Channel to Portsmouth. It was a brief stop-off in Vissingham, where, and reports don't make it entirely how, the consignment was discovered by Dutch customs officials. At one and a half tonnes, a single container of such size, destined entirely for the UK, it was significant. Working with the UK's National Crime Agency, the Dutch authorities faced a similar choice as they had in the earlier find. Do they let the drugs run their course, monitor their progress in the hope of gaining further intelligence, or simply pull the container in at Portsmouth? £185 million worth of cocaine is significant. The risk of losing its tail and entirely the UK... The risk of it losing its tail and entering the UK market was too great not to do anything, but the prize of disrupting an entire importation network could that opportunity be left unexploited. The decision was made to set up a full-scale surveillance operation involving multiple UK police forces, but instead of leaving the drugs themselves in play, they were surreptitiously unloaded at Vissingham and replaced with convincing but simulated stimulants. The cargo then sent on its way to Portsmouth, with the waiting brigade of customs and police officers ready to follow its movements. As I said earlier, every moment a cargo ship's moored at dock, it costs the shipping company money. So from the second the Atlantic Clipper pulled into the docks at Portsmouth, a great flurry of highly coordinated actions take place, in order to first unload, and then load whatever is coming off for going on to the ship. If the watchers from the customs office weren't aware of which specific container they were meant to be keeping tabs on, they might not have noticed, against the backdrop of hundreds of containers and crates being swung from deck to dock, 33 boxes of bananas being shifted by forklift truck away from the main landing stage and to an otherwise unremarkable storage area on the vast port complex by 44-year-old dock worker David Oliver. If they had missed it, they wouldn't have seen David helping 48-year-old Amit Aiden to load those 33 boxes into the back of a white man, which had driven onto the site just half an hour earlier. They'd also have missed Amit waving a nervous goodbye to 45-year-old Michael Jordan, the gate guard whom, unauthorised, had ushered him in and out of the facility. Customs agents, alongside the National Crime Agency, had seen all this though, as had their unblinking array of cameras. So when Amet headed out to join the M75 and on to the first rendezvous point, they knew exactly where he was and exactly what he was doing.
someone else had been observing the operation, but from a slightly closer distance. Hamian Sadiq, an associate of Jonathan Arnold from Manchester. His role was to shadow the drugs as they left the port, travelling a short distance behind, on the hour-long journey to the first destination, and out on the hour-long journey onto their first destination, a motor service station, just north of Winchester, on the M3. It was there, on the northbound side of the motorway, that banana boxes were split open, and the tightly wrapped packages transferred to a large removal van, owned by real estate movers, and secreted within a custom-built compartment designed to conceal the contents. The main parts of the container, dressed as it were a film set, with extenuous items of furniture. At the wheel of the new vehicle was close friend of Arnold, Connor Fletcher, with another friend, James Jenkins, co-director of the recently formed Modification of Performance Limited, beside him, supervising the last leg of the journey to the real estate removals base in Sutton Coalfield. Following behind, as he had the first vehicle, was Hamuan Sadiq, It was when the cargo was loaded onto the vehicles registered to real estate removals just north of Winchester that officers got the first indication of a connection between the business and the haul of drugs, linking it to the intercepted loads previously discovered. As the white removal lorry pulled into the premises in Sutton Coalfield, which a call ahead and liaison with local police confirmed was empty but for the company's owner Jonathan Arnold, it was clear that now was the time to strike. Officers from the National Crime Agency, West Midlands Regional Organised Crime Unit, supported by firearm officers and police sniffer dogs, entered the premises and peacefully arrested four men. Arnold himself, the van's driver Fletcher, the passenger Jenkins and the driver of the trailing car, Hamuan Sadiq. Simultaneously, three further arrests were made in or around the Portsmouth area. Dock worker David Oliver who had unloaded the boxes from the ship, Amma Aden, who was the driver of the van from the dock to the service station, and the port guard, Michael Jordan, who had allowed the van to enter and exit the premises without any authorisation at all. When I was thinking about locations to visit for this episode, the obvious one really would have been to take a trip down to Portsmouth. Maybe maybe follow the route taken by the cargo as it was unloaded from the ship and transported up to Jonathan Alden's premises in some coalfield. Now, um, I work really hard researching and reciting all this, but I say with all respect in the world, I am not making a 400 mile round trip to stand by a fence and describe container ships to you. Um, 
then I thought that I'd look at where the drugs ultimately end up with uh, consumers but given the ubiquity of cocaine across society that could be any pub wedding college workplace in the country given that I think it was two years ago there was an investigation by the Sunday Times and of the 12 bathrooms they tested in the Houses of Parliament 11 had traces of cocaine and I think that pretty well illustrates just how much the drug is intersecting with everyday life at every tier of society. Instead then, I decided that I would go to a place which features probably most heavily in the press coverage. The place that was mentioned in nearly every headline that was used. Um, and point to a difference between the operation Jonathan led and others like it. There's lots of people that struggle smuggle huge quantities of the drugs but there's very few that went to such a prestigious school I didn't go to a public school or a private school as some of our listeners abroad might understand them to be I went to a state school an all boys state secondary school it was selective in as far as uh, the end of our primary school we had exams and the brightest to go away to the grammar school and the rest of us were thrown together in with the intention that we would all inverted commas study uh, things like metalwork and digging and sport and the creative arts and please don't get me wrong I loved my secondary school but in the pecking order of British education it was about as far from Repton as it's possible to get. It's instilled in students from Repton that one day uh, they'll be the inheritors of power and of influence. That because of the education and the connections they'll gain there and a handful of other leading public schools in the country, they are destined for greatness. So, a trip to Repton then. Let's, uh, let's see what we can see. I don't know if on the early recording you could have heard panting in the background. If you could, 
that was my chocolate Labrador production assistant who's come out on location with me today. I realised some time ago that uh, a middle-aged bloke wandering around, talking to himself, um, walking by himself, does tend to draw a bit of attention. I therefore sought to avoid the problem by bringing this hairy fellow with me. If you've got a chocolate Labrador, walk with purpose and confidently bid good morning and good afternoon to wherever you meet, you can get away with absolutely anything, including this stroll around the grounds of one of the country's leading public schools. To the uninitiated, Repton has the sense and feel and aura, if you pardon the pun, of Hogwarts. Centuries old, heavy stone buildings sit around a small but delicately planted and pruned garden where the where the lawns meet the flower beds each edge is cut in sharp straight lines everything is just so everything is just perfect there's covered walkways along the sides of the buildings where with absolutely no imagination you can picture identically dressed children and perfectly preen students shuffling from Latin to hockey practice. <laughs> There's a whole feel of permanence that the school has been here for hundreds of years and will continue for hundreds of years. And that while the world outside may change, as much of the past as it's possible is maintained and celebrated from a school song to the arcane indoor game of real tennis, which schools like this and Eton uh, still play and really are among the only places on earth that do. When you walk in through the village, what's odd, at, well at least to me anyway, is how the school bleeds into it. My experience of public schools, and I'll be honest it's not particularly extensive, is that they sit entirely detached from the town or village where they are, behind fences and walls whether that's to keep the pupils in or the yokels out I'm never entirely sure At Repton though departments and accommodation and admin blocks sit right in the village next to the post office and the pub 
it's it's almost as though the school's influence spreads right throughout creating what in part feels a little bit like a, an English educational theme park there is nowhere though in the entire school which offers a more idealised picture of an English public school than the cricket pitch which spreads out wide in front of the main school building. The pavilion over to the right isn't some glass and steel structure or uh, you know a wooden panelled superannuated shed it's a beautiful almost almost cartoonishly beautifully thatched building that I think you'll ever see Jonathan seemed to excel at sport at school and it's easy to see that if you were in the first 11 cricket team and this is where you played on this glorious pitch right at the heart of everything the school is the status that it would imbue you with and the confidence and the prestige that really, really little else could. With this case, and it's something I avoid when dealing with violent crime, the temptation to make pop psychology speculations about those involved is enormous. It wasn't friends from school who Jonathan drew into his enterprise they were friends from where he grew up entirely different people from those he'd have come across here at Repton than he'd have rubbed shoulders with here in fact when I think about it really Jonathan's parents they weren't old money they were wealthy you know you'd have to be wealthy to stump up the what is it 300 grand for seven years here but his dad's business was ultimately making signs to put up outside houses that were for sale they weren't mega rich they were comfortable well-off middle-class family but being good at sport takes you a long way at a school like this. But how accepted the die-in-the-wall generational wealth of Repton students would have treated him? I don't know. I'm not saying being here for him, he was some sort of anomaly. But he was different to most of the kids here. As he'd been different from most of the kids from where he grew up with really
maybe because it's not a directly violent crime that Jonathan was found guilty of that I feel it's it's less problematic to speculate about, about some of these things someone that I've only really read about but every day here he would have been inculcated with this belief that he was destined for great things that because he'd come here his future was rosy how you do that without breeding arrogance and entitlement is beyond me but not going to university not doing what the majority of his peers went on to do and working in his family's business which isn't a bank it isn't managing some great estate maybe there was a feeling that he should be doing better that he should be making the sort of money some of his friends probably were maybe it was the the working for it he had a bit of a struggle with Jonathan had every opportunity like the chance to do whatever he wanted and in the end he set out on a life of crime that had seen him attempting to smuggle you know like 120 million pounds worth of cocaine into the country maybe it wasn't about whether he fit in here or not about where see or his life maybe it was simply him believing that he had the right to the benefits an education like this has to offer but he simply decided that he just wasn't willing to do the work in order to get there Given the unexpected involvement of Arnold and his associates from real estate removals, the four men arrested in Sutton Coalfield were released under police investigation, as further work needed to take place before a charging decision could be made by the Crown Prosecution Services. During this time, somewhat unbelievably one of the four, Connor Fletcher, was again arrested, this time returning to the UK from France with... 60 kilograms of cocaine hidden, quite remarkably, in a concealed compartment of a white transit van. In the end, of all those charged in relation to the conspiracy to import one and a half tonnes of cocaine into the UK, five of the six pleaded guilty. There were two separate court cases, the first in Portsmouth for the two men at the port and the driver who transported the consignment to Winchester, which began in June this year. Pleading guilty, David Oliver, the man who unloaded 33 boxes of bananas from the Atlantic Clipper, was sentenced to 14 years, with driver Amit Eden also pleading guilty, receiving 13 years. 
of the Portsmouth end of the prosecutions, the heaviest sentence went to the security guard, Michael Jordan. He pleaded his innocence to the court, and as such, when found guilty, didn't receive a sentencing discount the others benefited from, and was handed down 21 years. At the same time, in Birmingham, Jonathan Arnold's group were before the court. The weight of evidence against the four was significant. From the moment the drugs were intercepted and swapped out by Dutch customs officials, the supposed consignment of bananas was kept under constant surveillance, both physically by the police and digitally through video monitoring. As a result, Arnold himself and his employees from the removals firm, James Jenkins and Connor Fletcher, pleaded guilty and on the 28th of July 2023, the three were handed down a combined sentence of almost 50 years in prison, with the ringleader, Arnold, accounting for just under half of those. Only one member of the conspiracy, Hamyun Sadiq, pled guilty. He was the man from Manchester, who monitored from a following vehicle the consignment from the docks in Portsmouth up to the industrial estate in Sutton Coalfield. His version of events, that he'd never travelled with the drugs, and in fact had no idea of their existence until the police raided the premises, fell on deaf ears, as the jury too found him guilty of conspiracy to import drugs, and he was handed a sentence of 27 years. hour or so I've been driving um, somewhat aimlessly around an industrial estate in Sutton Coalfield uh, the same state I'm told that Jonathan's premises were at the company's registered offices are above a parade of shops close to the centre of town and asking people there they seem to think somewhere somewhere on this estate he had a place where his vans were kept safe and secure and it was there that the police collared him and caught he and his accomplices red-handed so far i have had absolutely no luck in finding the lockup uh, there's plenty of anonymous grey warehouses with brightly painted uh, kind of corrugated wall top doors but nothing seems to match the photos that I've got of his actual actual base of operations I found the photos on a kind of a long defunct Instagram account along with posts interesting that boast new premises that he'd taken a lease out on what's strange though is that when i found that warehouse the one that was supposed to be his his new shiny premises it was in fact a self-storage company they'd been at that premises for 
as long as the industrial estate in its current form had been in existence and while nobody seemed to know anything about Anthony a bit more digging online I found lots of mentions of them in Anthony's social media about how he worked with them and stored stuff there and recommended them to his um, clients to store stuff between moves or just general a general storage place the photo that he used to boast of his business's expansion was of one of his vans outside the storage place with the van rather helpfully obscuring the name of the self-storage place and I don't know the less cynical than me might suggest that he'd moved to a bigger setup that it was a firm on the up that it was his new place but that really it wasn't it was just uh, well it was just really a bit of a flex that everything was going well when in fact the business was doing something altogether different Post-conviction, Anthony's mum Susan did an interview with the bastion of objective news reporting, The Mail Online. In it, she made a plea that her son was more sinned against than sinned, that he'd been exploited by powerful criminals and were he not such a loyal and principled man, he would have turned informant, therefore reducing the time he'd have had to serve in prison. His guilty plea, she said, was a sign of his acknowledgement of his wrongdoing and that he'd been brought up to be an honourable man, to admit his faults and face the consequences. She talks about a near addiction to opioids, supposedly as a result of a sporting injury he'd suffered, of how the family had been threatened by sinister underworld figures, that unless they stayed silent, there would be consequences. She also complains that she feels his treatment has been all the more harsh because of her previous job as Deputy Police and Crime Commissioner that he was being made an example of. I don't know about any of that. I know that it must be hard for a mother who'd given her child every opportunity money can buy. I know it must be hard to imagine him now facing a long prison sentence for conspiracies to smuggle one and a half tonnes of cocaine. He was clearly just part of a much bigger operation. You hear people talk about the head of a snake when it comes to criminal gangs. Monkeys and organ grinders, minnows and big fish. No evidence was presented to suggest that Jonathan had the means to process or sell the drugs himself. He may have sold small quantities to friends, but he was no kingpin as described in the press. He did play an important role though, but it was just that, one link in the chain. A chain that clearly involved much more sophisticated and successful operators than him. His arrest didn't impact on the street price of cocaine. There wasn't a fall in availability of the drug. If you remember a few years ago, when KFC went a week without being able to supply chicken to its restaurants, there was near chaos. Reports appeared 
of people phoning 999 requesting help in finding open restaurants. On social media, videos popped up of near riots at stores simply on the rumours that they'd received a delivery of chicken. No such things happened after one and a half tonnes of cocaine failed to reach the market. Alternative supplies arrived, contingencies provided effective, the show went on. It's almost as though a seizure which was described by Detective Chief Superintendent Jenny Scrimey, the head of West Midlands Regional Organised Crime Unit as the biggest drug case that we've ever dealt with as an organisation, made no difference at all. After wrapping up in Repton, the dog and I hopped back in the car and set off out of the village. As we headed off, ahead of us there seemed to be a backlog of traffic on the road. It was just before a narrow bridge, over what I think was probably a river, and as I got closer, I realised that the head of the line was a police car. Its doors open, and the one officer there was examining what appeared to be a hedgerow. As the traffic in front of me manoeuvred slowly around the obstruction, and I got closer to the officer, it wasn't the hedge itself he was interested in, but rather what was in it. 90% in the adjacent farmer's field, and 10% peeking out onto the road was a small black car. There was obviously some sort of ditch in the field, as the rear of the car was pointed into the air at about 45 degrees angle, and the lack of urgency displayed by the officer suggested that the driver had long fled the scene. It looked pretty incongruous, in the middle of what was an idyllic English country scene, with rolling fields, neat hedgerows and fine, elegant church spires, was a Ford Kia that had run off the road and been dumped by the driver, who had obviously done so as a result of drink or drugs. The sort of criminality you're familiar with in a city could somehow be found just transported into this place of genteel prosperity. A smarter person than me had find a way to present this as a metaphor, of how Jonathan Arnold, who was educated at the school that gave the world archbishops, political leaders, newspaper editors, and that's before we even mentioned Roald Dahl, became an unlikely and unwelcome addition to the roll call of heralded old boys. And how, when you Google a school name, it's his picture that greets you, not the unaccountable achievements that it's nurtured. What that might overlook, though, is that schools like Repton educated and elevated the young men who would go on to build the British Empire, who would colonise one quarter of the world's lands and one-fifths of its population. You don't get to do that without a hefty dollop of self-assuredness and a belief that the rules that apply to others don't quite apply to you. When I think about it in those terms, it seems that Jonathan Ireland might simply have been maintaining a school tradition. He would be taking what he wanted, whenever he wanted, and the rules and obligations that are imposed and by the ordinary little people didn't quite apply to him. <laughs> 